Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. And this is another episode of the ED ECMO podcast. My name is Joe Belezzo, and this is an ED ECMO podcast that has been broken down into two separate episodes. This is going to be episode 33A and 33B, and these were both originally recorded at Recess Fest 2016. Uh, 33A is Shiner talking about how to run the perfect code. 33B is me talking about how to place a transvenous pacer. Now, before we get there, a couple of housekeeping issues. First of all, lots of you have asked about the ED ECMO podcast site. First of all, site is undergoing a little bit of revision. It's getting streamlined. For those of you out there right now, the blog, podcast, and literature sections are all completely intact. However, the site itself is going through a bit of a rehab. Looking for a facelift, and we will let you know when that site is completely revamped. Now, on to more important things. Reanimate 3 is March 2 and 3, 2017. Now, Reanimate 3 is sold out. However, we have a couple of really important guests coming to Reanimate 3. We have Lionel Lamho and the France Samu team. These are the folks that are doing pre-hospital ECMO, and they're going to be guest faculty at Reanimate 3. And with this faculty, we're going to video and record all of these lectures and post them on the site. So look forward to that. Additionally, Zaf Kassam, Jim Manning, Chris Ho, Scott Weingart, Zach Shiner, Chris Nixon, and his crew from the Alfred in Melbourne, Australia. Reanimate 3 is going to be amazing. I will, po- I will post videos and recordings to the site. Once we get them, it's going to be amazing. Next, Reanimate 4. Reanimate 4 is September 21st and 22nd. Now, as great as Reanimate 3 is going to be, Reanimate 4 is going to be amazing. We have Steve Bernard. Steve Bernard from the original hypothermia trials from 2002. We have Steve Bernard from the original cheer trial. This is all out of the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. And again, uh, these tickets, the tickets are selling out months and months in advance. So if you want to get your ticket to Reanimate 4, go to reanimateconference.com, reanimateconference.com. Get your tickets now. They're selling out unbelievably fast, both docs and nurse tickets. Now, before Reanimate 4 comes out, we have Castle Fest 2017. Now, the lectures you're going to hear about today, the one from Shiner and myself, were both recorded at Recess Fest 2016. Recess Fest 2017 is an add-on to Castle Fest 2017. Go to castlefest2017.com to check out how to get tickets to that event. That's an event put on by Scott Weingart and Haney Malamut. Castle Fest is April 10th and 13th, 2017, and Recess Fest is the 13th and 14th, and we will all be there. This is ECMO, Reboa, Transesophageal Echo, Echo, Transesophageal Echo, I'll say it again, Advanced Airway Techniques, Ventilatory Wizardry with Haney Malamut, and Workshops, Workshops, and more Workshops. And lastly... The Essentials of Emergency Medicine. That's essentialsofem.com, May 16th through 18th, 2017. 
ah, this is the essentials. This is this is the essentials of emergency medicine in Vegas. It's an event you're not going to want to miss, and all of us are going to be there. So come check it out. Uh, EssentialsofEM.com. Now, on to this podcast episode. In this episode, this is episode 33A called Bringing Down the House. This is Zach Shiner talking about how to run a better code. Originally recorded again at Recess Fest 2016. Originally released on the Ultrasound Podcast ultrasoundpodcast.com from the infamous Matt Dawson and Mike Mallon or Haney Malamut with Haney's totally awesome resuscitation podcast. But for now, here's Zach with bringing down the house. All right. So the day our, our world turned upside down, Joe and I took care of this guy together six and a half years ago. 59 year old guy came in out of hospital, cardiac arrest, refractory V-fib, he was, had a downtime, total downtime of 69 minutes. And after we did everything we could possibly do to kill this guy, we got him on ECMO. And he walked out of the hospital nine days later, completely neurologically intact. It was an amazing night for Joe and I. But when this happened, all of a sudden we said, God, we got to go back and change everything. If, if cardiac arrests are going to run for over an hour, we got to start figuring out how to do all this minutia. And when we started getting into the minutia, we realized that the minutia was incredibly important. Incredibly important. And so actually a better name for this lecture is not really how to run a code. It's really something called team play. And I changed the name of this lecture just a couple weeks ago because I read a book. And the book is, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's about these MIT students who play blackjack. And they go to, to Vegas and they bring down, oh, bringing down the house, that's what it's called. I think there's a movie about it too, I haven't seen it. But in blackjack, if you do everything perfect, if you count cards, if you, if you make sure you make the right moves at the right time and mathematically you, you, know, you do everything perfect, you can get about a 2% edge on the house. 52% of the time you're going to win, 48% of the time Vegas is going to win. And so you can actually beat blackjack except you have, to pay, you have to play about a billion games to make any money at a 2% edge. And in a lot of ways, that's what we've been doing in resuscitation. For the last 40 years, we've been working on all of these little things that might change the survival of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest by a couple of percentage points. Now, does anybody know what is the rate of survival, neurologically intact, of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? 8%. Yeah, that's about right. Some cities, it's a little bit higher. A lot of cities, it's a little bit lower. In San Diego, we're kind of right there. We're eight, maybe eight, nine percent. That's pretty abysmal. That's pretty awful. And it hasn't really changed over the last 30 years because we do the same stuff, right? We do chest compressions. We do defibrillation. We do epinephrine. And do we really know any of that works? Does epinephrine work? Well, it depends on how you define it, right? Epinephrine, yeah, it brings you 20 to 30% of patients are going to come back. They're going to get return of spontaneous circulation if you do epinephrine. But we know that three big trials tell us that it's probably not going to change the rate of neurologic function, the return of neurologic function. And so maybe this isn't the right thing to do. 
But see, that's where th this Vegas thing gets kind of interesting to me because MIT students did not go for 2%. They took Vegas for millions. And the way that they took Vegas for millions is that they capitalized on the 2%. They said, well, in, if we keep playing these hands, it comes around that some of these hands, some of these tables have cards that are stacked highly in our favor. And so when that happens, we want to bring the masses. We want to bring all of our buddies, and we want to throw down as much money on that table as we can. And so by using team play, they were able to take 2% and turn it into a huge difference. And that's what I want to talk to you with team play with cardiac arrest. Now, how many of you have been involved with something like this? The cluster, right? If we're really honest with ourselves, this is probably our last code. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I'll be kind of hypocritical here. My last code had a lot of things like this. Even after all of the stuff we've done, all the changes and amazing interventions that we've done at Sharp, sometimes things just progress to this. And oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, this is what happens recurrently in our codes. And so this changed for me actually after I gave a lecture up in Seattle. I went up there to give them a talk about ECMO, and I realized that I was the one that was getting educated. Because I was talking to these medics about Medic One program. If you've heard about it, it's an amazing program. But these guys and gals could run cardiac arrest resuscitation better in a bank, better in a coffee shop, better on the rainy streets of Seattle than I could run in my ER and that pissed me off. That really pissed me off that these guys could be so slick in all these crazy environments and I couldn't do the same thing in the ER. So I took this back to our ER and I said, well, how do we change this? Well, first of all, we've got to recognize what are the th components of cardiac arrest that make it so problematic. And the first one is that space is expensive. The space around a cardiac arrest is highly expensive. Now, when you're out on a street, you've got a little bit of room to move in. When you're around in the ER, it's much, much, much tighter. And so you need to think about where you put each and every person. The second thing is that it's intrinsically chaotic. Unless you plan to change the course of the resuscitation, it's going to go to chaos. And then the last thing here is that it's infrequent. And it's just infrequent enough that if you don't plan, if you don't start thinking about how you're going to do this, you will repeat the same cluster over and over and over. Okay? So goals of resuscitation. We took this. We said, what are the evils? What are our goals? The goals for us are probably fairly intuitive. This first one, let's run some high-quality CPR. Let's do the things we think are right. We want to minimize interruptions. We want to make sure we defibrillate ventricular fibrillation at the right time. We want to make sure that we're giving the doses of meds at the times that we want to them to be given. And then the second one may not be so intrinsically clear. And that was something called increasing the cognitive availability. We wanted to allow the resuscitationist, the person that's actually running the code, the doc that's taking care of the patient, we wanted to allow them to be offloaded from responsibilities. We wanted them to do less 
so that they could focus on what was actually wrong with the patient, like Joe was talking about H's and T's, so that they could take a step back and have time to think about the history, talk to the family, talk to the medics more than that two-second, oh, what did you get? Because we all know that that almost always is incorrect. Right? Let someone be able to have the 30,000-foot experience. Okay? So how do we do this? Well, this room may look a lot like that cluster. You got the medic going in, doing the side straddle, one-arm chest compression. Right? How effective is that? Not very effective. You've got this room with just a bunch of people in it. It looks like it's a bunch of chaos. Except something is actually fundamentally different about this picture. And it involves this. And I want to take just a second for you to look at this. But this is what we decided was how we were going to run our codes. And I'm going to put it back up in a second. So hold on a sec. The idea here is that we wanted to start thinking ergonomically. We realize that space is expensive. We need people in exactly the right place, just like in Seattle when they did this. And so this schematic allows us to put everything that we need for our codes, not only for our regular arrests, but we wanted to do it for our ECMO arrests when we started having lots more equipment, lots more complexity. We wanted to allow this to occur in a stepwise fashion. And so when you go back and you look at this picture, things actually change. Because now we have Joe, the alpha doc. We've got the beta doc. We've got an alpha nurse. We've got a beta nurse. We've got a RT. We've got a pharmacist, a tech, and a gopher nurse all standing in exactly the right place. And how did we do this? Well, it took practice. And it takes continued practice. It takes reminding people of what they need to do so that we can avoid situations just like this. Everybody makes mistakes, even doctors. You forgot to I say... I forgot to say clear. <laughs> he forgot to say clear. So you want to avoid situations like that. And so the general concepts here is that we wanted to make sure that we did the same thing in the same place every single time. Allowed people to know, when I stand in this spot, this is what I do. This is what I do. And I don't do things that I, that other things that I shouldn't be doing at that same time. The second thing is that we wanted to give specific people specific tasks. And the last thing we wanted to do here is we wanted to educate everybody in that room about why we thought the stuff was important that we were doing why we thought that that was important. And so one of the fundamental changes that we did was we actually started allowing our nurses to lead the codes. That may sound completely crazy to you, but allowing nurses to lead our codes made a huge impact on us. And we talked about increasing the cognitive availability of that alpha doc by having the nurse not only take care of the timing of defibrillation, but being involved with the dosing of medications, involved in the quality of the chest compressions were going on, a lot of the things that we thought we were doing poorly about our resuscitation changed. Because who causes interruptions in chest compressions? We do. We do. We're the ones that say, oh, just give me a second. I've got to get that intubation in. Oh, just give me a second. I've got to get that central line in. We're the ones that are causing that CPP, that coronary artery perfusion pressure, to plummet 
as we are interrupting our chest compression. And so quality of resuscitation went up as a result of nurse-led codes. We had a couple of other problems that we thought, oh man, we could change this. We could make this better. I talked to you about the side straddle one-arm chest compression. I also, have you ever been involved with a code where you're trying to get them off of that medic gurney and it takes forever, right? Why? Because everybody's got their hands in it. Everybody wants to do their thing at the right time. And so by allowing this to occur, you actually delay your resuscitation. You delay your chest compression quality quite a bit. So in San Diego, we have a couple advantages of in there, and one of them is we got great weather all the time. So you know what we did? We took this and we pushed it outside, something that we now call CPR al fresco. And so look here, here's us waiting for the, medic, the uh, medic to arrive. We've got our gurney outside, we've got our Lucas in place. With only a very few people, we transition them to that gurney. We start quality chest compressions outside the hospital. So we're not getting that side straddle one arm chest compression. And they go to the bed getting high quality CPR. So a couple of fundamental changes, but here is the take home point. In 2010, before Ralph, before all this chaos turned us upside down down in San Diego, our survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest was 13%. That's not bad. We said 8%. We felt good about ourselves. We're doing better than the nation. But last, or in 2014, our percent went up to 28%. And, oh, that's because you guys do ECMO. You do all these crazy interventions. Of course you have a great cardiac arrest survivorship. If you take out, in 2014, all of our ECMO patients, you don't even include them in the data, guess what happens to that 28%? It's 28%. It's the exact same. So it's not the ECMO, it's something else. And fundamentally for me, I think it is allowing us to run a well-organized, team play approach to resuscitation. So take home point here, organize your resuscitation. Thank you. So that concludes episode 33A of the EDECMO podcast, bringing down the house with Zach Shiner or how to run a perfect code. Coming up next is ED ECMO episode 33B is my lecture from Recess Fest 2016. This lecture is on how to place a transvenous pacemaker. Yeah, it's not all ECMO. It's endovascular resuscitation, folks. This is how to resuscitate folks without being a complete and total wimp. On behalf of Zach Shiner, Scott Weingart, this is Joe Belezzo from the ED ECMO podcast, signing out. Hey.